So I want to begin reading uh, from the text that actually Pastor Sam read for us in the introduction in Hebrews to then jump into the prophets uh, in the Old Testament. So I'm going to begin reading in Hebrews chapter 1 in the very beginning. And then we'll talk a little bit about it. And then, like I said, that will bring us into a little bit more of a discussion on the nature of the Old Testament prophets, uh, the prophetic books. It says in Hebrews chapter 1, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom, through whom also he created the world. Uh, the beginning of Hebrews is an incredible introduction that says so much about God's revelation that we spent a lot of time talking about last semester uh, and who Christ is, that Christ uh, is creator. We see that through Christ, uh, he created the world talked about that as well last semester on the doctrine of God. But uh, really what we've been doing is this whole semester now, we've been studying the special revelation, how God reveals himself to us, how we know who God is in his word, and how do we faithfully interpret that. That's what this whole semester has been about. Uh, one of the points I want to make from this passage uh, in the very first two verses, just the first two verses of Hebrews chapter 1, uh, is the role of prophets. Uh, what are the role of prophets? What would you all say? What is a prophet and what is his role? Speak what God tells him. All right, Lonnie says, speak what God tells him to. Uh, and I see some heads shaking. Uh yeah, and like you see here in the very first verse in Hebrews, it says, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Uh, and that's what we'll be looking at tonight, where God is revealing himself, giving instruction, re revealing new things about maybe who he is and what he's going to do in this world through the prophets. So there's that. And then the other side uh, within the New Covenant that we see in the New Testament Verse 2 then gets into that other side of things. It says, in the last days, which, is, which are the days that we're living in now, in the new covenant, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed uh, the heir of all things. Uh, so why do we as Christians believe the canon, and I say the canon, the books of the Bible is closed? Why do we not add new books? Why do we not have current day prophets in the same sense, um, in the same way the Old Testament prophets were? Why don't we have new prophets? The early church decided so because they were afraid of heresy. Okay, we could go. Because they believed that, that the scripture was complete. All right, well. Because the risk is somebody would write a book, I'm prophet, Oh, let's say the later day saints, and voila, I've got a book of Mormon, and yeah. therefore, you know. Yeah. Well, so it's true. That's what the early church says. But why, why do we believe this? Do we believe that the canon is closed? Do we believe that there could be new, more prophets still today, and we could add more books? If we have Jesus, why do we need more prophets? That's a good question. That's a perfect question. Right? What does verse 2 say? Uh, it says, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And, and so we see his son is the final word that goes forth, uh, which was, he was born at the fullness of time. It was all coming to him. And then now the son is born and his life, the gospel is the last word uh, that is being spoken. So, because Christ has come and we have Christ, he is the last word. He is sufficient and he is all we need for all the good things that we need in this life. Yes. 
Yes. <laughs> so you can't use that as a rationale because the, the letters were after Christ had left. Yeah, all testifying to, to the Son and the Christ the, by the apostles who were eyewitnesses to this Christ. Right? So that's what I would point to. These were the apostles, eyewitnesses of the resurrection of this Christ. Uh, all testifying to this one last final word. But that's a good pushback there, and so it's good for us to be thinking through these things. Paul, who was revealed later, mm-hmm. like through a vision. Yep, in a real tangible way, right? And his road to Damascus. Vision, that wasn't an eyewitness account. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he even says that. Yeah. In the history true. of the church, I mean, a lot of the popes were considered that their word was, was canon, and therefore, you know, they, they didn't end because the popes added things. And when the Protestant Re- Reformation, we didn't know what, what things were canon, so yeah. we went and said, hey, w- w- let's go back to what we can trust. Yeah, yeah, that's really good. So there's a lot of history behind this, for sure. Uh, this is a fun trivia fact. Uh, a man named Athanasius was the first one that we have record of that has listed all 66 books of the Bible in one list. Uh, and, and so there was a lot of discussion on this, if, you want to, if we want to look back at the early, early church. Um, but that's not necessarily the discussion tonight. We will get into church history at a later, later semester, which is incredibly fascinating, and it's something I do love. Uh, but let's jump over to the Old Testament. Uh, so talking about these prophets who God spoke through uh, in the latter days, before Christ, before the fullness of time came. Uh, so, first part on your note sheet, right? The nature of Old Testament prophetic literature. Major prophets include, so let's first identify these books, make it easy. Uh, there are major prophets and there are minor prophets. The major prophets include, what, what do we think? Does anyone know? Has anyone heard of these terms? Yeah. The ones with what was that? The ones with bigger books. The ones with bigger books, yes. That's what Nancy was going to say. Yes, the ones that are a lot of chapters. So that's why they're the major ones, right? They're not more important. They're just larger. So what are some of these ones? I'm just hearing a bunch of voices at once. I'll say it one more time. Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. What was that? Daniel. Daniel. Yeah, we, we include Daniel uh, now. Uh, in the Hebrew Bible, uh, some would have put Daniel in a different category, uh, more in the narrative, uh, because you see prophecy and narr- narrative in the book of Daniel. But yeah, I would include all four of those books, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And then the minor prophets. How many are there? Twelve. What are the twelve? Without looking them up. Who, is, who remembers the books of the Bible from Moana? What was that? Amos. Amos. Hosea. Starts with Hosea, if you want to go in order. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk. Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Uh, so those are the 12. Let me say that again. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. If you want to look them up so you could write them all down, if you're doing that, feel free. But those are the minor prophets. Why are they the minor prophets? Because they're small. Yes, because they are small. Uh Question here in Nochi, what is the majority of the Old Testament prophecy about? What is the majority of the Old Testament prophecy about? I mean, this is a big, just general question. If you were to try to summarize in a nice statement, what is the enti- most, most of the Old Testament prophecy about, what would you say? Destruction and redemption of Israel. The destruction, wait, what was that? How did you say that? Destruction and redemption of Israel. The destruction and redemption of Israel. I, I like that. Isaiah has a lot about coming north in him. 
coming to the Lord. But by him coming, there's a lot of description about how Jesus doing being with what Paul with the call of him to Isaiah. Yeah, so there's a lot pointing to the Messiah and the coming of the Lord. Right? Those are the messianic prophecies. We call those the messianic prophecies referring to the Messiah. Uh, I thought this was interesting. I found this, as you can see in the book, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. It's a footnote. Uh, this quote says, Less than 2% of Old Testament prophecy is messianic, which is surprising. Um, I didn't necessarily do more research to see how accurate the statement is. I'm trusting the statement. Uh, but this is from... Like I said, you can look this up, uh, this book. Less than 5% specifically describes the New Covenant age. So that's us today in the New Covenant. Uh, and less than 1% concerns events yet to come in our future. So that would be the second coming of Christ. So the point of this statement here, this, this quote, is to show that the majority of Old Testament prophecy is about the immediate destruction uh, and restoration of Israel and Judah. Uh, And so we see that in the majority of the major and minor prophets. Uh, When Israel was divided up into two kingdoms, Israel in the north, Judah in the south, and their sin, and God kept giving them prophets, telling them to repent, turn back to God, repent, turn back to God. Uh, It's like a broken record almost. Uh, When we went through the Minor Prophets in youth group, and we are about to finish the book of Ezekiel now in youth group, it's been really pretty much the same message over and over and over again. Uh, Repent. This is the sin that you're doing, which is wicked uh, to the Lord. Repent and turn to the Lord, or else or else. And, and it's big, scary threats uh, and how God is going to pour out his wrath upon those who don't turn back to the Lord. So that's what the majority of the prophets are about. Uh, which is interesting because I think we like to talk about either the future events that yet to come. I mean, that makes sense, Right? Or the Messianic prophecies, and that makes sense as well because uh, that's the age that we live in. And so that's what's most um, applicable for us. Uh, and we like to see how all of Scripture points to the Christ, which is appropriate, and we should be doing that. Uh, but I think it was just interesting to see, though, but the majority of the Old Testament prophets is referring to the immediate judgment that comes to them. All right. Uh, like Hebrew poetry, which actually we'll be seeing next week, uh, prophetic literature utilizes figures of speech. I think if you've read any of the prophets, you recognize this. Uh, there are a lot of nice pictures drawn for you through the prophet's words uh, in, order, in, in the way he describes, they describe things going to come about. Uh, and these are just some examples. Uh, Amos 3, 8, the lion has roared, uh, which if you were just to say it in plain English, <laughs> it would be referring to how God is mad in the context. God is mad. And you see here, the lion has roared. Isaiah 1, 18, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be um, as white as snow. So white as snow, if you can correct that there. Uh, and again, that's just an example. Uh, it's not going to necessarily be literally snow. It's, uh, we see the figures of speech at play here. And then Jeremiah 3.1, and just another quick example. You have lived as a prostitute with many lovers. This is referring to the nation itself. Right? So it's not referring to a, a literal prostitute, but referring to the nation themselves and how they keep turning to other gods. Uh, so these are uh, just three of many different uh, examples. But because of this, and we'll see this next week, we're talking about poetry and wisdom literature next week, 
which is the last week, which is kind of crazy. This I feel like gone has gone fast. Maybe you think it's been lagging on forever. I don't know. Uh, but what we see here with these figures of speech, sometimes it makes it hard for interpretation. What do we take figuratively with the figures of speech, and what do we take literally in the interpretation? And this is something we'll talk more about a little bit later tonight. Uh, when we interpret these passages, we want to interpret Scripture literally, but we want to interpret Scripture um, literally by what the author intended it to say. So, and that, that's what's difficult when we know they use uh, poetic type language in prophecy and obviously poetry. Uh, next part. Uh, the books referring to the prophecies or anthologies. Uh, does anyone know what an, antho- an anthology is? Not necessarily biography. It's a what was that? A collection of stories. Yes, it's a collection of stories. Uh, that you put together uh, stories. It could be oral stories originally uh, with these prophets uh, or just different things that happened. These, and they were put together uh, into one book. So, for example, book, uh, the prophet Isaiah, uh, he had a long ministry and he prophesied a lot, as we could see with this his huge book, why he's... Uh, major prophet, and it's a collection of all of those together in the book. Uh, So yeah, it's a collection of shorter stories or writings or oral messages, something like that you could write down. So this is helpful for us to know because it's not necessarily a biography in the sense that we understand where when we read a biography today, a lot of times we automatically recognize or many times they're written in a way that it's just presented in chronological order. That's not necessarily always the case with uh, prophets. They're not always in chronological order, especially since they are a collection of stories. Uh, I thought this was interesting. They many times don't have a thematic order either uh, with these collections, which makes it difficult sometimes to make an outline of some of these uh, prophets. Uh, I do think you can, with a broad brush, make general categories, and people do, of course, with outlines. But they are difficult to make outlines of these uh, prophetic books uh, because they're not necessarily in chronological order. Some parts, of course, are, uh, but they're not necessarily in order by theme all the time either. Um, so any question on the nature or any comments on the nature in Old Testament prophetic literature before we get into the historical, cultural context and the theological context of it? I saw Libby say, no. <laughs> All right. Uh, the historical, cultural Context, and I also have in there the theological context. So the question is, is just simply, what was the historical, cultural, and theological context of the prophets? Again, this is just a big, broad sweep. Uh, obviously, we could narrow it down to specific books and be a lot more specific with what their context was. Um, but for the majority of the prophets, when did they live in Israel History. What was going on? So let's remind ourselves about the history of the Israelites. They lived in the last like 400 years. They lived in the last 400 years. Well, they went all the way until 400 BC, and then the, there's 400 years of silence before the New Testament came. Uh, Post Judges era. It's with the kings. So it's with the kings of Israel and Judah. That's important, right? So post-judges. So they're in 
the promised land. They're not doing well in the promised land. Uh, after uh, Solomon, we know the kingdom was divided. And which kingdom do we have in the north? Israel. Israel. And then which one in the south? Judah. Judah, the other option, yeah. Uh, uh, and what happens to the northern kingdom? First. They were invaded first. They were invaded first. Yes. Was it the Assyrians? By the Assyrians. And then a while afterwards, the southern kingdom is invaded by by the Babylonians. Yeah, so rough dates to kind of put it in your timeline, in your mind. You could write this down. Uh most people say that the Assyrians invaded Israel around 720 B.C. Uh, I saw some other places say 722, if you want to be that specific, B.C. Um, so I think most, most sources will be right around that, around 720 B.C. for the Assyrians invading the northern kingdom. And then the southern kingdom... And these dates are referring to not the initial, like uh, when they're initially going to the land, but when these kingdoms completely fell. And then the southern kingdom, uh, they have the day around 587 B.C., 587, which is interesting how specific some of these dates are. Um, I'm not very um, much of a scholar at all when it comes to trying to figure out these timelines. So I just refer to the commentaries. Uh, But yeah, 587 B.C. is what the majority would say for uh, the kingdom of Judah falling to the Babylonians. And and so you see how much longer the Babylonians, or I should say Judah, lasted uh, compared to the northern kingdom. And when you look at the king's of the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, you could kind of see why the kings in the northern kingdom were all evil. Uh, Kings in the southern kingdom, most of them were evil, but not all of them. (laughs) There were some good kings. Uh, So, and so you you see that within the history and the cultural context of what's going on, right? And so then they're invaded, they go into exile, and so then we have... um, some prophets when they're in exile and then they eventually come out of exile and go back to the land and that's post, uh, the post-exilic uh, prophets. And if you want to turn your page, I have a nice chart that I made to try to help with this. And I was telling Elizabeth this earlier today that I feel like I probably spent too much time trying to put this chart together because I was looking at many other charts that were made and like putting other information in, and I kept changing stuff uh, based on new things I was finding. And so this was the best I was able to put together. There might, there's probably more accurate ones. Um, but you can kind of see on the top uh, of the chart, uh, we have the earliest and then mo- and then down all the way to the most recent. Uh, Obadiah is interesting uh, because some people say for sure it was in the 800s BC and then others say it was in the four or 500s BC. It uh, depends on really where you look. And so it's either one or the other. But the others are, people are pretty confident in at least the era that they have them in, in the ranges of the dates there. So, but let's look above this really quick, the chart. So the basic prophetic message, uh, the Duvall and Hayes book that uh, I've been looking through a lot throughout this study, Grasping God's Word, uh, which is on the back of your note sheet, summarizes the overall message of the prophets as, and they come up with these three things that you could see on here. Uh, The overall message of the prophets is that you have broken the covenant, you better repent, So we kind of already talked about this, right? You've broken the covenant, you better repent. No repentance, then judgment. (laughs) And then three, 
yet there is hope beyond the judgment for a glorious and future restoration. So, sin, called to repentance, many times they don't repent, uh, and then judgment comes. But then finally, at the end of lots of, a lot of the prophetic books, we see a glimpse of hope. After, there is no hope. Or, or, I mean, after the fact where you see there's almost no hope for the immediate individuals living at that time. When God, after God destroys them, and then he says, um, I'm still here, I'm going to restore Israel, and they will be my people, and I will be their God. And so this is the three basic elements within the message of the prophets. I think it's helpful uh, for us to see uh, some of the books of these, whether it's a minor or major prophet, spend more time on the one, two, or three than others. So some might spend more on numbers one and two and talk more about that and not have as much of the third part. And some might talk a little bit more about the third of restoration than others. So all of them have some elements of this. Uh, so when it comes to the messianic promises or prophecies, I should say, and then the prophecies of the second coming of Christ, obviously that would all fall under the third, number three, the third one, uh, when it gets to promises of future restoration. So that's where we find the Messianic prophecies under the third category there. Um, does anyone have any questions on this chart? Just glancing it over. And, uh, does any, everyone understand the basic premise of it? When the category that says group, um, I was trying to show like where these prophecies were probably, or these prophets, I should say, were probably from. Um, whether they're from the um, the group in the north, Israel, obviously, or group in the south, Judah, or whether they are from um, the post-exilic uh, area era. So, and then where they prophesied, and so you can see there are some prophets here that didn't necessarily prophesy to Israel or Judah. There are some foreign lands here. So. Like, after they were exiled, but, like, from which one? Or just... Oh, uh, where they prophesied to? No, like, where are they from? Uh, they were... Majority of these were from Judah, but then they lived most of their life probably in exile, uh, if not born in exile. And so some of these, I don't know exactly where they were technically born. Um, they could have been born in exile or, or not. But so but that's a good question. So any other questions on this? I think this Jonah, yeah. I know Jonah that he was prophesying to Assyria. Yeah. And they heard that. Yeah, and they repented, right? Nineveh repents, turns back to God. And this is why it's one of the earliest uh we know is one of the earliest minor prophets because they turn back to God, but we know that doesn't last long. Uh, they quickly go back to their evil ways, and then they do then eventually invade Israel. And so this is before they invade Israel, before Israel falls to the Assyrians. Prophesying to the Assyrians or prophesying to... to Nah You mean Nahum? Nahum is the... Yes. Well, it, his prophecy is concerning more so Assyria, Assyria I should say, uh, more so than to the Assyrians. So if you go and look at the book of Nahum, it's, uh, Nahum is more so prophesying about the Assyrians uh, than, I think, to the Assyrians. Um, What was that? Obadiah is talking about Edom. Yeah, Obadiah is about uh, Edom. Yeah, it seems more likely the 
by the ABC because it's great because it seems like they take joy in the fall of Israel. I mean Judah. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's a up for debate, I guess, and and I think it's because there's two different wars with Edomites that happened around in the 800s and also in the 500s, and they don't and it happened around one of those wars when Obadiah was prophesying, and it's hard to know exactly which one. But uh, there's probably good evidence. Until after Israel did, but not not long, not after Judah, but it wasn't very long. That's a good point. Yeah. So, if you're interested in learning more on which side you want to take, if Obadiah is more so earlier or later, uh, I encourage you to do that. And that's something that could be worth doing for sure. I think it's important to figure out dates and times of when things were written because it does um, change a little bit when you look at the historical context in interpreting it. So, all right. So let's take the interpretive journey uh, with Ezekiel chapter eight. So let's all turn to Ezekiel chapter eight. Um, like I said, we are almost done with this book with the youth group, uh, and we've went through chapter eight. But it was a long time ago, I feel like, because this, this whole past school year, we've been trying to work through it. <laughs> so, uh, And if you remember, we've been going through the five steps of the interpretive journey. Uh, and so we're just repeating those steps for this, for this journey. The first step, grasp the text in their town. What did the text mean to the biblical audience? Uh, so, let's read um, some of this. So, does someone want to begin reading in verse 5? Um, and go through... I mean, I guess we could just have two readers. Uh, verse 5 through verse 13, then verse 14 through the rest of the chapter. Does anyone want to volunteer for the first section. All right, thanks, Michael. So 5 through 13, and then who wants to volunteer for 14 through 18? All right, thank you, Elizabeth. So as we read, just obviously the first step is observe, 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 observe the text, make notes if you can, Write down different observations on your note sheet if you don't want to write in your Bible or if you have a Bible on your phone. And then we will talk about what this probably meant to the original audience with the context and everything. All right. Then he said to me, Son of man, lift up your eyes now towards the north. So I lifted up my eyes towards the north, and behold, north of the altar gate in the entrance was this image of jealousy. And he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing? The great abominations that the house of Israel are committing here to drive me far from my sanctuary, but you will see still greater abominations. And he brought me to the entrance of the court, and when I looked, behold, there was a hole in the wall. Then he said to me, Son of man, dig in the hole. So I dug in the wall, and behold, there was an entrance. And he said to me, Go in and see the vile abominations that they are committing here. So I went in and saw and there, engraved on the wall, all around, was every form of creeping things and loathsome beasts, and all the idols of the house of Israel. And before them stood seventy men, or seventy men, of the elders of the house of Israel, with Jazaniah, the son of Stephen, standing among them. Each had his censer in his hand, and the smoke of the cloud of incense went up. Then he said to me, Son of man, you or have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark, each in his room of pictures? For they say, The Lord does not see us, the Lord has forsaken the land. He said also to me, You will still see greater abominations that they commit. Then he brought me to the entrance of the north gate of the house of the Lord, and behold, there sat women weeping for Tamas. 
Then he said to me, Have you seen this, O son of man? You will see greater abominations than these. And he brought me into the inner court of the house of the Lord. And behold, at the entrance of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about twenty-five men with their backs to the temple of the Lord, and their faces toward the east, worshipping the sun toward the east. Then he said to me, Have you seen this, O son of man? It is too light a thing for the house of Judah to commit the abominations that they commit here, that they should fill the land with violence and provoke me still further to anger. Behold, they put the branch to their nose. Therefore, I will act in wrath. My eye will not spare, nor I will have pity. And though, the, though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. All right. So if you look at your chart, um, you can see Ezekiel uh, from Judah prophesies to exiles in Babylon uh, to kind of have an idea of when and where this is happening. Well, first, ask, let's a answer the question, where is this specific chapter taking place? What was that? Well, well, here in so in chapter eight, uh, this is specifically in Jerusalem. Um, so quickly, what's happening? Uh, Ezekiel is a prophet for the exiles in Babylon. So during this time, uh, some of the exiles have already gone to uh, Babylon. Have already. Uh, been taken out of the city of Jerusalem. But there are some Israelites still in Jerusalem. There are uh, still some in this city. And which is what, what's interesting, what we read in the book of Ezekiel, is that those who are remaining in the city are disobeying God. God's desire is for them to go out of the city and go into exile, uh, away from the city, and that, because God wants them to go through the punishment, go into exile. And so those who are remaining back are sinning against God. And what's happening in this prophecy in chapter 8, God is showing Ezekiel, who is outside of the city in exile, uh, showing him what's happening back at their city in Jerusalem uh, for those who, have, uh, who are disobeying God and remaining. Eventually, they all are destroyed, which we read a little bit later in the book of Ezekiel, quite a bit chapters later. Uh, but with chapter 8, right, God is showing Ezekiel different parts of the city of Jerusalem. And what is surprising? What is God doing? What's the point? Why is God showing Ezekiel the city? They're not worshiping him anymore. Instead, they're worshiping idols and, junk. idols and junk. Yes, that's a good way to say it. <laughs> uh, so you see these different gods, these different idols set up in this holy city, completely turning their backs against God. What do the leaders of the city think? They think God can't see us. God has abandoned us. God doesn't see what we're doing. We know God does, and God is showing Ezekiel what's happening in the city. Uh, and so we see different images being worshipped. Uh, verse 14, verse 14 uh, Tammuz, uh, Tammuz uh, is a Babylonian god, uh, an idol, so it names one specifically there. Um, and so... Yeah, the elders are turning their backs to God. They don't believe God sees them, what they're doing. They have got idols set up all around uh, this city that's supposed to be uh, the city of David, or that's Bethlehem, but it's supposed to be uh, a holy city, and it's a complete abomination to the Lord. So if you were to look at the top of page two on your note sheet, so look at one, two, and three. Uh, if we see that as a basic outline of the prophets, where does chapter 8 fall in? Does it fall with under 1, 2, or 3? One. 1. 
So that's helpful for us to determine what's, what's going on and just uh, set up the, the context of what, what is happening. So the question is, what did the text mean to the biblical audience? So God shows Ezekiel these things, these horrific things happening, and then Ezekiel then proclaims it. It's written down, obviously. Uh, so what did the text mean to the biblical audience? What would you write down? I always wonder why they didn't continue their teaching their children in, on that the religion like they were supposed to. Mm. And why they would... I don't understand worshiping a rock or an animal or a tree or whatever they, they did, but why... I think that's what he's telling them. I mean, that's all part of it, right? Uh, what did the text mean to the biblical audience? I mean, it's it means that uh, they should have been teaching their younger the generation so they don't set up these idols. But ultimately, it means that God does see the evil that they're doing, uh, even though the leaders didn't think that God saw and they thought that God just abandoned them. Uh, it, it means uh, that God is against them. God is calling these things abominations, and it says even greater abominations when he continues to show Ezekiel the wickedness that they're doing. Uh, and so it means all these things, right? They're not in a, in a good spots. Uh, it means that they have broken the covenants. Uh, what covenant are we referring to when we say that they've broken the covenant with God? You shall worship no other God but me. Ultimately, we see this in the Mosaic covenant, right? The covenant that God made with Moses on Mount Sinai. Uh, so they have broken the Mosaic covenant. And, and so that's what all of this is meaning. God is showing the evidence to Ezekiel of what is going on back at the city. All right, let's continue with the interpretive journey. Uh, measure the width of the river. So the step two, what are the differences between the biblical audience and us? We're not in captivity. We have a different covenant. I mean, these are two huge things right there. What was that? Many times we don't follow the covenant we're under. So that's a similarity uh, between us and them. So that's a good thing to note. Right? So there's some similarities, some differences. Uh, I think you guys said some of the larger differences, and you make note of a good similarity uh, there. All right, so crossing the principalizing bridge, uh, number three, step three. What are the theological principles in this text? So remember, I think this is one of the more difficult uh, sections. And in order to be able to do step three, you need to identify the differences, but then the similarities in order to make this theological principle that is, remember, cultureless, timeless, that would be faithful to the text here, but then also be able to be applied for us today. What could we say, put down as a principalizing bridge for this section? God sees all sin and doesn't like it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, God sees all sin and doesn't like it. Yeah, you could you could mention something about uh, enjoying uh, the presence of God. Actually, because I didn't mention this a little bit later, uh, I think it's in verse. I mean, chapter nine or chapter ten. So it's one this, this chapter after or two chapters after. I don't remember which. Uh, you see where then because of all of this, the presence of God leaves the city. So then God then, then does leave. Uh, and so with all that wrapped in, I wrote something like this. God knows every treasure, his presence, 
Uh, and then I said both in public and private life because you kind of saw that as he was giving the tour of the city, um, how they were not treasuring the presence of God there. And the, publicly they weren't, and then also privately. So God knows, again, the knowledge of God, he knows these things if we treasure his presence or not. And obviously he hates our wickedness, our sin, and, and all those things. So anything like that we could put as a principalizing bridge. Uh, are there any other thoughts that we could put down for a principalizing bridge? Principalizing bridge. Don't you think repentance first, then judgment, repentance? I mean, repentance is incredibly important, right? But in this section right here uh, that we read, uh, God wasn't necessarily telling Israel to repent here. He does many other places. Uh, but this specific spot was just to show their undesire for God. But you could, you could apply that in. All right. Uh, step four: consult the biblical map. Uh, so take whatever you write down for your principalizing bridge. Test that with the rest of Scripture. How does your theological principle fit with the rest of the Bible? And you could take this a step a step further, number four, and say, how are we supposed to modify that principalizing bridge based on the new covenant because of Christ? Uh, so... Consult, does your theological principle fit the rest of the Bible? If we have the one that I wrote down, or you could test it with your own, God knows if we treasure his presence both in public and private life. Uh, I think the rest of Scripture also would testify to that. God knows uh, if we, knows our hearts, right? Knows if we uh, come to him faithfully, if we come to him with love, or just or out of wickedness. Um, so that all depends on what you write for your principalizing bridge for the third step. And then lastly, five, grasp the text in our town. How should individual Christians today live out this theological principle? Uh, you could have something like, we are to value the Lord more than anything else that might fight for our attention, right? Such as the idols. Uh, in Ezekiel's day, were uh, winning in their fight for in the fight for their attention. Um, they were worshiping them more explicitly, but for us, our idols really just are anything that we prize more than God himself. So we are to value the Lord more than anything else that might fight that, more, that might fight for our attention. And then we could be even more specific with that and name specific items that might uh, be fighting for our attention. So depending on who, whether you're teaching this to a group, obviously knowing what might be fighting for their attention or not, what might be idols to a specific group, you could bring those out for applications. Or if you're applying it to yourself, obviously you can, you can make a very personal application for yourself. So that's the basic rundown, right, of the five steps of, of this. Um, so we didn't talk necessarily about messianic prophecies, which you might have thought that we were going to talk about especially since, uh, I don't know if you all noticed this, but uh, for preparation for this week, I asked uh, for you all to read, that was on the back of the note sheet, uh, from Isaiah 53, which is a very uh, messianic prophecy of the suffering servants. Uh, so there's a lot of incredible prophecies pointing to Christ, which is incredible because it's proof after proof after proof that Christ actually is the Messiah, 
which is really cool for us, uh, and validates our worship for him. Uh, so, but when, if we were to grapple with different texts like that, the, it would be a little bit different, obviously, with this interpretive journey. And there are some difficulties that we will have to jump over when we talk about uh, any, uh, any prophecy that has to do with point number three. Remember, point three or number three are those pointing to restoration uh, or with redemption on page two, on top of page two. So I want to talk about, uh, to finish this up, special challenges for uh, prophetic literature. And these special challenges are specifically for number three, all of those pointing to future restoration and redemption. Uh, These challenges don't really show up really within the first two where God just calls or points out sin and calls them to repent, and then judgment comes. So these uh, challenges are specifically, so I don't have this on your note sheet, so just make sure you make a note that these are specifically for number three, uh, about talking about the future restoration prophecies or redemption prophecies. So the first one under this section is the new view slash or dash far view problem. Can anyone guess what this one is? For an individual person group, or was it a universal declaration for all? That, that's a way to think about it. I wasn't going to word that way, but it could be worded in a sense that way. Um, so whether it's for a certain group, so we could think of Israel, restora- restoration of Israel, or for um, beyond that, like maybe referring to the first or second coming of Christ. So that's what it's referring to. So the near view, or the new view, I think it's supposed to be near view. Sorry for my typos. Um, So the first one, the near view, is the return of the Jewish exiles under Ezra or Nehemiah. So is this prophecy, when it's talking about restoration or redemption, is it referring to the nearest thing that's going to happen, which is the return of Israel as a nation to the promised land under, uh, under Ezra and Nehemiah. Or you could go further out. Is this restoration referring to the first coming of Christ then bringing on the new covenant? Or you could go even further out, still yet to come, is this restoration or redemption prophecy referring to uh, the second coming of Christ and then also within the millennial kingdom? And a lot of times it's hard to know like, where in those three specifically, um, this prophecy of restoration is specifically talking about when it's actually going to take place. So that could be difficult. We can know for some, and some are trickier. So that's a problem. Yeah. What was that? Some may apply to both. Some may apply to both, exactly. So how do we know when it does? Uh, are we saying the text has two meanings here? We can apply it two different ways, or can we not? And so these are all questions we need to ask ourselves. Part has come true. So. What was that? When you read some parts, only part of it has come true. So therefore, we, we, we take the picture that there's a far view portion. And this is what makes it difficult and why it's a challenge, because sometimes uh, the, prof- the prophet could be referring to all three of these at different points in the same passage. Uh, and so sometimes it's hard to know where he's pointing to. So, yeah, he may have not known uh, because the prophets didn't fully understand the, entire, the entirety of God's redemptive plan and how it's going to work out. So that's a good point. But our aim is always to try to get to what the author intended uh, because that's the safest route. And then we could go from there on and have more discussions on how to interpret it. All right, and then the last one I want to talk about is the poetic language. So we talked about this earlier, how there's poetic language in prophecy and how the prophets use this colorful language to paint a picture of what's happening. 
right? So whether you take it figuratively or literally is the question. Um, and, and it could be di- difficult. Uh, so, quick example. I'm going to turn to Isaiah, and we'll finish with this. Isaiah chapter 11. You could turn there if you want. You don't need to. Uh, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 6. So talking about future restoration, redemption, what it's going to be like. Uh, And we're not necessarily trying to determine if it's the immediate return of Israel, the first coming or second coming. We're talking about the poetic language here. So Isaiah chapter 11, verse 6, it says, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goats, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. So obviously this is referring, talking about a time of what's going to look like where it's going to be incredibly peaceful, right? There's not going to be violence. Um, so are we to interpret this literally, where these literal animals will be doing these things together, where they won't be devouring each other, where there will be a literal uh, child leading them? Or are we supposed to take it figuratively in the sense that God, the point is that there's going to be peace between these different nations, between a nation that act like a wolf and then one like a lamb, and they'll be able to live peacefully together. And so people have interpreted them, obviously, different ways based on whether they take it figuratively or literally. So that's just one example amongst, obviously, dozens, hundreds, if not more. So, Any final concluding questions or thoughts on anything tonight? So when you get to a literal or figurative problem, what do you do? Well, you have to first determine whether it's poetic language being used. And a lot of times you could uh, see when how it's even written uh, in the English Bible. I think the English Bibles are good to, to kind of determine or to show the way they write it, whether this was Hebrew poetry or not. So that can make a difference. Um, but then also just study and looking up commentaries. Eleven six. Would you just teach it both ways? Um, I think I would simply just point to the. I think what the point is that there will be peace, um, and I would necessarily get to uh, whether it was literal or not. It's worth asking, but I don't know if that's necessarily the point. I'm trying to determine if it's literal literal animals living peacefully together or not. But I think the point is what the atmosphere is going to be like. It's going to be one of nonviolence. So. Where it talks about there'll be no war. You turn your weapon into plowshares and that kind of thing. Sure. I mean, there's a lot of different um, passages on it, and I could get to you, uh, get those to you a little bit later. Um, I don't have them all on top of my head, so, but, but I mean, it talks about how Israel will be living in peace, um, and then we could go into the prophecies of Gog and Magog, which we went through just recently in Ezekiel with the youth group, and this nation, this is going to come from the north and uh, invade Israel, and they'll be living in peace, uh, but we're not necessarily, obviously, getting into any of that tonight, so. Any other final questions? All right, let's close, up. let's close out in prayer. Lord, we love you and we thank you again for this time and this opportunity we have to uh, talk about your word, Lord, and try to understand the best way uh, we can and interpret your word, Lord, with the help of your Holy Spirit, Lord. I pray that we will always come to your word humbly, Lord, recognizing that we are 
um, sinful human beings, Lord, who uh, cannot know anything about you, Lord, if it wasn't for you revealing it to us, Lord, and helping us in understanding your revealed um, your revealed revelation, Lord. We love you and we thank you for your goodness, Lord, your holiness and your salvation that you offer us, Lord. We love you and we pray these things in your name. Amen.